With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, April, fashion isn't all about pretty clothes. No, it is not. Um, in fact, sometimes it can be downright monstrous. It can. And tomorrow is Halloween. And in honor of everyone's favorite creepy, crawly holiday, we thought it only appropriate that we should do something, well, decidedly a bit morbid. Yes, which in the case of today's episode means that we are looking at the history of killer fashion. And that is not killer in its figurative sense of fabulousness. This episode is about fashion that kills literally. And be warned, dress listeners, this episode is not for the faint of heart. We are going to get into some shockingly gruesome subject matter with our guest today, Dr. Allison Matthews David, an author of the book, Fashion Victims, The Dangers of Dress, Past and Present. Uh, Dr. David is an associate professor in the School of Fashion at Ryerson University in Toronto. We are so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you so much. Welcome to Dressed. Welcome. Thank you. So in your book's intro, you write that clothing in its most basic and fundamental purpose is meant to protect us. And it's always with us almost as this lifelong companion. But as you also point out, throughout history, this trusted friend has betrayed and harmed us. Your book is an incredible feat of research, and it is quite fascinating. But I have to know what led you to such a macabre subject matter? That's a very good question. I guess there's the answer to that is both personal and I suppose professional. The personal context is that I grew up as the daughter of a professional photographer. And so he, my, my father used um, our home, our family home as his, both his studio, but also his dark room. So I grew up kind of surrounded by dangerous chemicals in this sort of domestic environment that you think of as a safe space, but in fact, which like many textile workers later, um, contained things that were potentially harmful to human health. So this kind of contrast between the safe, the secure, the domestic, and the the kind of chemicals used to transform, you know, to kind of turn this posing session into a finished, retouched, beautiful photograph that was then kind of used as publicity really, I think, stuck with me into my adult life. And can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, what is your academic history? Sure. Um, this project, the genesis of this project also came about, I, I started out studying classics and art history. And then I kind of in my doctoral work at Stanford, I really got interested in material culture because there were lots of people studying American art. And I had always studied um, European stuff. So we were taught, you know, look at great paintings. But um, but actually studying material culture, just these sort of humble everyday objects of furniture and silver and trade cards and things like that got me thinking about, oh, well, maybe I can study dress. And uh, I wrote a paper for my supervisor on crinolines, <laughs> surprisingly, <laughs> um, in Paris in the 1860s. And I thought, OK, this is where I'm going. And I just sort of switched over to studying dress. And I've never, never regretted it, although I had a lot of learning to do because I never I wasn't really taught it. So um, during my thesis, I spent four years in Paris and I really sort of learned about it. And then my first job was at Winchester School of Art, where I had some amazing mentors and our field trips were up to Manchester um, with the master's students. Uh, and that's where I really got thinking about this project because we visited the Museum of Science and Industry and they showed us all of the things that happened during the early Industrial Revolution with cotton and people getting tuberculosis from passing shuttles to from one to the other, people going deaf and having their own sign language in these cotton factories. And so these satanic mills really got me thinking about the human cost that these um, fashions had. Yeah, and your book talks a lot about that. And we're going to just dig right in because we've talked about it before on dress, but making the connection between hygiene and germ transmission, which you just spoke to, was a long time coming for Western civilization. And in one place in which disease often resided was in dirty and unwashed clothing. So can you speak specifically to the connection between lice and typhus and its role in not only the death of Napoleon's Grand Army in 1812, but also the role of lice or cooties in the uniforms of soldiers during World War I. I think many people are familiar with this term cooties, but I don't think, um, I know I certainly didn't know the origin until reading your book. I didn't either, actually. I found so many 
interesting links that, you know, I grew up playing tag and, you know, being immunized for, you know, you've got cooties. Um, yeah. And I d- had no idea that it came from that, um, from, and also feeling lousy is comes from like feeling tired and loud, like louse infected, um, infected with lice. So, um, but I guess as a dress historian, I started thinking about the links that this had. I mean, we all know also about head lice now. That's still obviously a problem, you know, when your my kids come home from school with head lice. But we think less about body lice. There are several different kinds of lice. And body lice were lice that lived especially in the seams of clothing. If you couldn't wash your clothes, and obviously there were situations, many situations before um, modern washing machines have made it so convenient to wash our clothes, um, where people wore dirty clothing. I mean, even in World War One in the trenches, they advise, you know, soldiers should be, have a change of clothes once a week. So even, you know, by our standards where we are able to especially wash undergarments all the time, many people were exposed to this risk. And a soldier on campaign, there were laundresses that came along, but it, it wasn't guaranteed that you'd have clean water um, or that you'd be able to launder your undergarments very often at all um, in these situations. And those wool uniforms that they're wearing too, right? It's residing in these uniforms that you can't necessarily wash. Exactly. We 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 you know most of our textiles now are are washable, but again, yes, one of the kind of real threats or perceived threats was was woolen clothing that, as you say, that you couldn't um, easily wash in water; it would shrink, um, and you would you know maybe beat it or brush it, but that wouldn't get rid of the lice. So you know, people even I've read medieval descriptions of people physically picking out the little lice one by one by hand um, in order to try and de-louse these these garments. So it was a really persistent problem. Um, And in the army of Napoleon, they've done archaeological excavations in um, Vilnius. And so this is where uh, many of the troops died. And they've actually tested soldiers' tooth pulp, the the skeletons that were found from the 1812, from the retreat from Russia, Um, during that war, um, many of them had what was called trench fever or typhus. Um, So, and they also even found, tried to excavate the lice and they tested the lice, which still had these parasites. And, um, and so they've, they've actually have archaeological evidence that this was a really dangerous disease for the soldiers. And I have to say that my sister is actually an epidemiologist, and I immediately text her after reading your book, and I said, did you know that there are historical epidemiologists who go back throughout history and study disease and extract disease. I think I thought that was so fascinating. Me too. I think DNA, um, whether it's in criminal investigations or historical investigations, can reveal so much um, that it was hidden uh, to us. And I think you write in your book that in the early 20th century, the connection between lice and typhus was finally made, and that was in the pre-World War I era. Um, but throughout the war, um, they kind of went to these extreme measures to try to you know, that using chemicals to essentially get um, the uniforms clear of the slice. And that wasn't any help either, was it? Well, it's hard to to really tell. I've read also, they were doing all sorts of experiments. Nicole figured out, a French researcher figured out the connection between typhus and lice in 1908. So quite late, but before World War One. Mm-hmm. And so they were doing all sorts of tests. I didn't get to write about all of it, but I have all these documents. Um, they would actually put little um, attachments of lice onto people's legs to see how they would bite and all sorts of things. And they were trying to, you know, figure out how to protect soldiers. But I thought it fascinating that, you know, here's this one harm and they use another harmful substance or substances. They recommend all sorts of, you know, because this is the World War One is the era of the first gas warfare. So mm-hmm. they recommend using the chemicals that were used to gas soldiers to fumigate clothing and get rid of the lice, which may, on the one hand, <laughs> have been effective. But um, as I mentioned, with, you know, clothing supposed to protect you from, you know, from this, but clothing also comes into contact with our skin. So I can't imagine wearing these, you know, picric acid or hydrogen cyanide, these really toxic substances next to the skin where it was very safe either. Yeah, I can't imagine that either. So lice was not the only danger lurking in people's wardrobes. And today we live in a largely hatless society, although I will say hats have been making a comeback as of late. But for centuries, hats were not only a ubiquitous fashion statement for men and women, they were part of a social custom that was synonymous with one's respectability. You would never leave your house without one. And yet, Allison, as you make explicitly clear in your book, lurking in this familiar companion was poison. Can you please tell us about the hidden dangers of men's hats, specifically of the 19th century, and one that was most famously immortalized in Lewis Carroll's famous character, the Mad Hatter? 
Yes, I really, I've always been fascinated by Alice in Wonderland and the Mad Hatter with his wonderful tea party. And it was really, really interesting to see that when I started to study this as a larger historical phenomenon, that the Mad Hatter, who's, you know, it's controversial whether or not he's mad because of mercury poisoning, because that wasn't widely known. Doctors knew it, but the general public didn't. So there's still debate on that. But what there's no debate on is that there really mercury poisoning was a problem for hatters for over 200 years. Um, they were chronically poisoned by the hats that they made, the fashionable hats, mostly fur felt hats for men and f some for women as well. Uh, and so he's kind of this very innocuous, wonderful, whimsical figure. But the reality of mercury poisoning from in for the hatters that made these hats was horrific um, and extended. And so the story of it really is that, yes, as you as you mentioned, hats, you would never leave the ho your home without a hat. And, and in an age before central heating, for example, or, you know, as a protection outside you and as a Canadian who wears a toque in the winter, mm -hmm. um, I know that like I, historically you had to have these hats. And if you were a middle or upper class woman, uh, man and sometimes woman, what you wanted was a beaver hat. Um, these were luxury items. They were worn by royalty. They were repaired. It was a real investment. And beaver fur uh, has a naturally barbed structure. And so you can transform it um, into fur felt quite easily and without mercury. It kind of, and in fact, old greasy beaver, um, beaver that had lined the robes or the coats of Russian Russians usually or First Nations peoples in North America was particularly prized. It was very expensive. Um, it was often called also coat beaver. Um, and so you could mix that with beaver pelts. And again, the whole, you know, economic fur trade, the fur trade, you know, founded on fashions for men's hats that fascinated me and caused, you know, just how that caused uh, cultural and environmental damage, certainly. But what's interesting is then, of course, beavers became extinct. They were hunted for their fur in Europe. They became extinct in the 16th century, so they turned to North America. But by the 18th century, with you know the loss of um, New France, for example, trade problems, dwindling supplies of beaver, hatters needed to turn to, hatting entrepreneurs, I should say, needed to turn to other raw materials. I mean, you could turn almost any animal into a fur felt hat. In fact, one source says, you know, if it had four legs and it walked past a hatter's, you know, workshop, it could be a hat. Oh, but no. the, you know, poor, poor animals, <laughs> um, all sorts of animals were turned into hats. But the, the kind of the most readily available when you didn't have beaver, which again, became incredibly expensive uh, in the 18th century, you could use locally available materials, so European, the hare or the rabbit, um, you know, and of course they multiply by rabbits, you can eat them. So they were a pretty easy source of fur. But the big problem with them is that the fur was not very good quality. It did not have that barbed structure of the beaver fur. And in fact, you needed to chemically transform it uh, before you could use it for hats. And the cheapest and most effective way of doing that, unfortunately, was mixing uh, mercury, which is a very toxic metal, the only metal that's liquid at room temperature, mixing mercury with nitric acid. And it formed a solution called carroting solution, which is interesting in relation to rabbits, but um, it turned the fur orange, but it also made it easier to felt and transform into hats. But of course, you can just imagine um, something like wool can also be transformed into felt, but it's less waterproof, for example, and less desired or less prized for, for hats. But for fur felt hats, you had to have the pelt of the animal. You had to kill the animal. Um, and it was brushed with this solution, often with bare hands. So the character, the person who brushed the solution on, was often uh, very exposed to high levels of mercury um, and no protection. Yeah. And I think I read somewhere in your book, too, that you talked about how um, these men, because it was largely men who did this felting process, would be drinking alcohol um, throughout the process um, to quench their thirst. And that that combination with, I think it was beer and the mercury poisoning was deadly. Exactly. Like we sort of forget the working conditions of, you know, they had to, in order to kind of transform the whole process, the hatting workshop was a very hot 
dusty and sweaty place for the workers because, in fact, um, after you got the fur and you turned it into the actual hat through a process um, called planking, which involved immersing this felt into a boiling kettle that was kept constantly hot. Yes, the men, um, and the one I'm thinking of is in France, they would drink, they recommend, you know, if only they could, the workers could drink coffee sweetened with licorice, that would be great. But in fact, most of them drink wine and there's a great painting of this guy just downing an entire bottle of wine. That would also compromise your liver function. But you can imagine this planking kettle with, you know, just steam billowing up. They're inhaling it. Um, They were planking with very cracked hands. It was a very acidic solution that they immersed it in. They would have had, you know, cracks in their hands. The mercury could have entered into their bloodstream and it wouldn't have been cleared out by their poor livers. So yeah, it was a very, very toxic environment, I suppose. And what is it about mercury that um, led to this characterization of the Mad Hatter? Um, Would they go crazy because of it getting into their bloodstream? Or what other ways did it affect the people that it came in contact with? Well, that's a really great question. Um, It affected people in multiple ways. I I read sort of 200 years of medical observations and reports starting in 1757 when um, Tenon, a doctor, visited hat shops and he noticed that there was no one over 40 years old in these workshops. All of the hatters looked sickly, cadaverous. They were... Uh, There were physical symptoms, but there were also later people become more and more, as psychology comes in, people become more and more interested in the psychological symptoms. So the the physical symptoms, one of the most obvious was shaking and trembling limbs. So even the Mad Hatter in the Lewis Carroll, through the looking glass, he gets so nervous at court that he, he shakes and trembles so much that he kicks his own shoes off. So that would be the physical trembling. There were other, you had tooth loss, your teeth turned black. One doctor really evocatively says that hatters smell like metal, um, which I thought was really horrific and fascinating. Another doctor mentioned they couldn't button their shirts or tie, tie their boot laces. So it really had a physical effect on these hatters, many of whom couldn't work. After, after too much exposure to mercury. But the f- psychological sem- uh, symptoms involved uh, also becoming incredibly shy and paranoid um, and, and kind of nervous. Um, so that I think you could call, you could kind of relate to the, to the Mad Hatter. So for example, medical inspectors would come into factories and because of the symptoms of mercury, the, the person would f- already feel paranoid, the hat worker, and he might throw down his tools and run off um, in, in kind of fear that he was being observed, which of course he was. So those were some of the symptoms that, um, that became obvious through studying this history. The effects of mercury were not just on the people and um, these men that were handling the hats. I also found it fascinating in your book that the that a lot of the chemicals from this process were being seeped into rivers in the communities in which these hats were being made. And then I think you also talked about like the mercury settling in houses and in people's food. Was that mercury or was that something else? It was mercury. Yes, that's what I found. One of the most interesting contrasts was the kind of Men's hat fashions changed constantly. I kind of call them mercurial because they're constantly shifting shapes. And felt is the perfect material to do this with because it's malleable. You can shape it into whatever shape you want. So you could have a bicorn or you could have a boulder hat or you could have a top hat. So, you know, there's there's all these shapes you can turn it in. And these constantly change, whereas mercury itself as a substance, there's no boundary between the body and the environment that it's used in. And in fact, mercury is persistent. It never never leaves the environment. So because of these hatting factories, and, and even in Paris in the 1820s, there were 3,000 hatters working in central Paris. You know, we think of it as this wonderful tourist place to visit that's beautiful, but in fact, it was a center of industry. So they were releasing tons of mercury into the air, and that mercury would billow out from those kettles uh, and as I mentioned, it would settle on the roofs. Um, historians of industrial pollution have talked about this. It would settle on the roofs. And then, of course, the, with the rain, it would be washed into the water supply. And so they think that it could have caused mass poisonings. So some people trace mass poisonings in the 1820s um, and you know later to this use of mercury in central Paris. But same thing in Connecticut, in Danvers. Um, there are still when these hiding factories from the early 19th century still release mercury into Long Island Sound when there's a flood event. Oh, wow. And so a lot of your book focuses on this 19th century period of the Industrial Revolution, as we've been speaking to. And this is a period that witnessed this rapid growth in manufacturing technology and thus mass production of goods. So 
the result of which uh, democratized once exclusive luxury goods for the masses at affordable prices, as you've talked about. Now these once, you know, luxury hats um, that were made out of beaver were now being made more affordably and en masse with rabbit and less expensive fur. But as we've also been talking about, these inexpensive products came at a huge and dangerous cost. And another case in point is for decades, arsenic was completely legal and unregulated, and it was used both to dye women's clothing, but also to color fashion plates. Something I found particularly fascinating about your book was that you actually worked directly with museum collection staff and conservators to test objects in their collections for these potentially hazardous materials, such as mercury and arsenic. So can you tell us a little bit more about what your research uncovered? I was reading uh, both sort of histories of arsenic poisoning, sort of how people had used arsenic to poison people, but also how it had been used, widely used even in medicines uh, in the 19th century. Uh, There's a great book by James Wharton called The Arsenic Century, which was really informative. It was used in all sorts of consumer products, even candies, and I'll come back to Sheila's Green, but it was used widely, and it was used as rat poison, all sorts of things. And people had tested some items, historical items, like wallpaper, where it was used to color wallpaper green, which I can come back to. But really, um, what what I found interesting was, again, this democratization of things that had been reserved to the rich. Part of that was colors and dyes. And historically, dyed, beautifully dyed garments were made with imported minerals, pigments, insects for cochineal, red, for example. But chemists start getting in on this very economically profitable production of dyes. And in fact, one chemist in 1778, Carl Wilhelm Schiele, invents a new form of green. Um, and it's dubbed Sheila's green and later often called by a lot of different names, including emerald green. So, you know, like a precious green emerald. And green was historically very hard color to obtain. Um, you had to mix yellow and green and it often faded. And so this new green was a very modern green. And again, this is in an era of industrial revolution where towns and cities are, are kind of seeing a lot of influx from people from the country. They're becoming very populous, also very gray and polluted. Green was a color that people desired. And so this beautiful green, which was sometimes even called le beau vert, the beautiful green, was a kind of amazing innovation. It didn't fade, and it looked good both by daylight and by gaslight or candlelight, which most greens looked gray in the evening. So you wouldn't want a green ball gown because it would look gray at the ball. But this new green was kind of almost unnaturally bright. But the problem was that it was made by mixing copper with arsenic trioxide, um, so again, it was purely born in a in a beaker, and it was quite toxic. But again, it was used for all sorts of consumer products, including, as, as I mentioned, candies, children's toys. It was a paint that was used to color a pigment. It was a pigment, not a dye. In other words, it wasn't water-soluble, but it was used to tint all sorts of things. And, and I have a fashion plate that even that uses it. Plenty of fashion plates um, were colored with this arsenical dye, as well as textiles. And people had tested... Things like wallpapers, where it was in very common use and would actually release arsenic into the environment, it volatilizes, it turns into a gas, um, as later people have figured out, later scientists, but people hadn't um, tested dress yet. And so my question was, you know, was were the texts I was reading about, you know, artificial flower makers in particular, where they would make leaves, um, gauze leaves, they would dust them with this pigment to make them nice and green and lifelike, were those reports true? And so... Uh, I started out with the exhibition that we co- I co-curated with senior curator of the Badashu Museum, Elizabeth Semelhack. Uh, we wanted to test some objects from the Badashu Museum's collection. And in fact, I approached our physics department and they opened their lab doors and helped us uh, test about over 30 objects and to find out with XRF technology, which is X-ray fluorescent spectroscopy. And in fact, it was quite complicated scientifically because lead and arsenic overlap in on the spectrum. Um, but if you found copper as well, and uh, the scientists helped me, Eric De Silva helped me uh, figure out if we could, you know, in terms of the presence, finding the presence of arsenic. And in fact, not all, but many of the artifacts that we tested did have arsenic. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, it was. I have to admit, it was maybe we we had moments in the lab where we were jumping out, or jumping up and down. Arsenic, there is arsenic. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe we shouldn't have been so happy. But the quantities, because it volatilizes, volatilizes because it evaporates. Um, in fact, the quantities weren't dangerous now, but at the time they may have been quite. According to historical records, they were very toxic at the time, and we have evidence that it did affect the workers. For example, um, Matilda Scheurer, who was a young, nineteen-year-old artificial flower maker, had worked with the pigment for 18 months and she became very sick her eyes turned green um, and she died a horrible death from arsenic poisoning after working in the artificial flower making industry and it caused these horrible um it was what was called an irritant poison so it would cause horrible sores on people's hands their mouths um all, all sorts of body parts that came into contact with this arsenic so using the scientific testing um, I found things, for example, I was in the print room at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and I found this wonderful flower-making kit. It was for, you know, the ladies who wanted to make flowers for gifts of, for their friends, for example, and they tested about four lo- four or five locations at the V&A for us, which was fantastic. And in four of those five locations, they found arsenic. So, um, and for example, the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto also tested a dress from the 1850s. They found arsenic. The Museum of London tested a beautiful lovely but suspiciously green child's dress, probably for about an eight to 10-year-old from the 1840s, and they found arsenic. So lots of institutions, I was really grateful, lots of institutions got in on it and helped us detect the presence of arsenic in these garments. What fascinated me was that arsenic in the 19th century was the most popular poison. It was quite easy to add to drinks and food, and many women used it in particular because they could you know, poison their husbands with it. Um, but in the 19th century, because of this poisoning, um, forensic technology started to catch up to these murderesses, and they developed tests, notably the Marsh test and the Reinch test. And these were tests that enabled people to detect the presence of arsenic in people's stomachs, for example. But what fascinated me was that these tests also got applied. Women's sanitary associations saw the effect that that these arsenical pigments, these green pigments were having on the young girls and women that worked in the artificial flower making industry. And they asked one world famous chemist, Hoffman, to test um, green dresses and green wreaths that women would wear to the ball. And they used the same tests that they were using to detect these poisons in criminal trials. And so Hoffman came out with a big letter in the Times, um, the London Times, saying that, in fact, one dress had enough arsenic in it to poison 200 people and the wreath could poison perhaps, you know, 40 people, 50 people. Um, So they were using these chemical tests and this caused a huge outcry. And there were horrible caricatures in journals like Punch of the arsenic waltz showing two skeletons dancing together and, you know, warnings not to purchase these greens. And so it became actually unfashionable because partly because it harmed the workers, but also because consumers were very afraid of either wearing these colors, which could maybe give a bourgeois woman, you know, the powder on from her hair wreath might give her a skin rash or green gloves were not comfortable. They could give you hurt your hands. But but um, but basically, these things became unfashionable or, or men afraid, like, don't dance with women in green. Um, <laughs> women in green should have, you know, the scarlet um, embroidery on their green dress saying poisoner, you know, things like that. So lots of warning, consumer warnings um, kind of got this practice banned, at least in France and Germany, not in England. But yeah, and people certainly became more and more aware of the dangers of these chemicals, but it is still astounding how little regulation existed in the fashion and textile industries during the 19th century. Um, and I, I'm just curious if you think it's largely related to a class-based bias, because these were not affluent men and women being killed by these poisonous materials, but overwhelmingly the working class men and women who made them. Definitely. Class was was a played a huge role. And in the case of working class men, for example, hatters, I thought it was, I learned a bit more about working class culture and I'm, I'm still studying it actually. I'm finding, um, you know, I'm looking at working on missing persons records um, in the Paris police archives and I'm finding people like a, a hatter wandering around with psychological problems and he his beard is turned orange so he's probably been carroted. Um, and, you know, I'm finding these these very human, human victims of the, the working classes. But men, working class men, the kind of idea of your job being risky. That was a fact of life for so many working class men. And by signing on to their contracts, they kind of assumed the danger 
of their jobs, which was often, you know, whether you worked in the building industry or other industries that were very dangerous for your health, um, where you could fall, but also be poisoned in the case of hatters, that was just kind of part of your expectations as a worker. Whereas for women, of course, and especially young girls, um, often a lot of the artificial flower makers were very young. I actually read of a a 12-year-old French flower maker who drank the green pigment and committed suicide with it, which is just horrific. But um, these poor young girls and and women were thought of as needing protection by the upper class and middle class women. So these lady lady sanitary society tells us, you know, kind of is on the on the trail to try and protect female workers. But of course, not all of them could be protected. Yeah. And um, a great example of class based bias was the death of the French ballerina Emma Livry, who died from burns sustained after her tool tutu caught fire on stage. And she was a celebrity. She's beloved by the Emperor of France and his subjects alike. And her death actually resulted in fire safety innovations in the theater because there really weren't any before this. So can you speak to the fire hazards that related disproportionately to ballerinas during this time? This was not, for instance, the first time this happened. There were many nameless ballerinas before Emma that had died in similar circumstances before any regulations were made. Definitely. I mean, we when we think of the prima ballerina, we think of someone very glamorous and beautiful um, and obviously a you know, trained athlete as well. But historically, ballet dancers were really very much working class girls, the 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 little the young Paris um, trainees for the opera, they were called ha or rats. Um, so you can kind of understand that they were just these working class girls who were trying to perhaps better themselves or in some cases find a wealthy male uh, patron at the ballet. Um, and so Emma Livry, she was an interesting case because she was seen as the new hope of the French Romantic Ballet. Um, she was born in the 1840s, but she was the daughter, illegitimate daughter of a French baron who abandoned the mother, who was also a dancer at the opera. Uh, but her mother had her trained to become you know, a ballet star. So she was. She At 16, she debuted in the romantic ballet, the Sylphide. There was even a, a whole ballet written for her by Hoffman called Le Papillon, or the Butterfly, in which she's the starring beautiful butterfly that flits around and is actually attracted to the flame. So it's this horrible foreshadowing, um, and she's saved from burning at the flames. But in fact, her her life finishes in a horrible blaze because Tutus were actually, as you can imagine, there there were starched layers and layers. The romantic tutu was rather long, and especially in the age of the 1860s when, you know, the crinoline was at its height, so these wide hoop skirts, so was the ballet tutu. It wasn't held up by hoops, but it was, you know, nine to ten layers of starched petticoats. And the theater itself was a very, very dangerous space. Many theaters burned down, you know, partly maybe someone threw their cigarette onto the floor or something like that. But also the the sets would catch fire because stages were illuminated with gaslighting, which was, unfortunately, before Emma Livry's accident, was often open. These open gas flames and, you know, Tool tutus, starch tutus do not mix. And in fact, she was, you know, fluffing up her her skirts to make them look nice before she went onto the stage. And her skirts caught on a gas lamp, which, you know, there were huge flames, what was described as a column of flames. She ran onto the stage. There was no water to put her put the flames out. There was nothing to protect her. Um, she was eventually kind of wrapped in a blanket, but uh, 40% of her body had been burned. And of course, medical science, um, her, her corset bones had to, they were metallic. They had to be peeled off her body. Her ballet costume survives in a little sarcophagus in the Paris um, Opera Museum. It's just tattered, singed. Um, the socks are hacked off her tights. You know, it was just, it's kind of this horrible relic of um, of this accident. And, you know, this she was not the only ballerina to suffer this fate, unfortunately. No, she was not. And the wide ballerina tutus were not the only women's clothing susceptible to fire danger. And we will learn more about that after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. 
So Livry died just as the fad for the enormous cage crinolines gripped fashion in the 1860s. At the height of their production, 4.8 million crinolines were being produced a year. The expansive skirts relieved women from having to wear layers of cumbersome petticoats, but they also could prove quite deadly. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I definitely can. Um, The crinoline, or as it's often called in the U.S., the hoop skirt, was a universal fashion. Um, Most women had at least two, and this was sort of across the social spectrum. These were very, you know, again, ubiquitous um, fashion items. And I guess what you have to see them in tandem with is also the mass production of textiles that would, you know, all of the mechanization of making these textiles that were draped over them. And, you know, this this created a huge controversy, literally, because women took up a lot of space in these crinolines um, and they, you know, men felt that they couldn't reach them. So, you know, this was also considered a problem. Um, but there were tons and tons of caricatures of women in these new broad hoop skirts. And one of the ways that it was critiqued was by stressing the crinoline as a fire hazard, which in fact, from studying the record, yes, it was actually a fire hazard. As you can imagine, you know, it's hard to kind of keep track of your body in space, but in a world that's lit by and heated by fire, coal, candles, um, sleeves or hems could catch on these flames or a spark could set them alight. And unfortunately, the crinoline did free women up from as many layers of heavy petticoats, but it also acted as a flu. So the way it's described, it's like, you know, the air would rush up underneath and and catch on fire extremely quickly. And often the textiles worn over them, the fabrics that they were draped with were very light fabrics and things like tulle that ballerinas wore as well. So these, you know, beautiful um, but flimsy kind of garments pretend, presented a real fire hazard from everyone from the arch, an archduchess, a young 18-year-old girl at the top of the social hierarchy, this you know, archduchess who was 18 and she was smoking, which she wasn't supposed to be doing in the 1860s. Her stern Prussian father came in and she tried to hide her cigarette behind her back and she caught on fire um, because of the, the fabrics of her crinoline and she burned um, to death. In fact, in the news reports, because women weren't supposed to smoke, the news reports say she stepped on a match. But um, but further down the social spectrum, especially at the end of the crinoline's fashionability, you start seeing um, housemaids, for example, who are tending fires or even cooks um, who are, again, working in this you know, dangerous environments, having their crinolines catch on fire. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, it's really horrific. And many famous, um, well, Longfellow's wife, Fanny, had her sleeve catch on fire on a candle, I believe, and she burned to death and he was um, mourned her for the rest of his life. Um, the Oscar Wilde's two half-sisters also were dancing at a Halloween ball um, and in Ireland, and there they caught on fire and both of them died because, of course, if your friend was on fire, you couldn't save them without putting yourself at risk. And the same was true of ballerinas. And so there were many, many real life incidents where um, fire did cause the death of women. Of course, women, ballerinas were were seen, it was a romantic death for a ballerina, unfortunately, but also this was their working costume, their occupational costume. So they were not sort of morally censored, but women wearing these supposedly frivolous fashions of crinolines, which of course you were, couldn't really not wear a crinoline because of social pressure, but women who wore them as a fashion were often censored. You know, there's a picture of Madame Krinolinska, for example, who, you know, after setting hearts aflame in her you know, ridiculously large crinoline, she burns, she then, you know, becomes a victim of the flames. So there was a lot of moral censure of women wearing these crinolines. Yeah. And we talk about moral censure of women um, and their fashion a lot on dressed because it extends beyond just what they're wearing, but they're actually their role in society and the threat of their role in society. But your book is called Fashion Victims. We've talked a lot about fashion victims um, in this interview, and there's so many throughout history and in so many different forms. But you say the most famous literal fashion victim was the modern dancer Isadora Duncan. So can you tell us about how fashion led to her tragic death? Yes. Fire was a real, I talk about both the hazards to the bodies of makers of fashion who like the hatters or the flower makers were often more affected by certain types of hazards like chemical toxins. Um, But the wearers of certain fashions were also kind of disproportionately affected. So probably again, the most dangerous 
fashion for women, I found was fire. Women were expected to dress in fashions that were often the silhouettes were more exaggerated, the fabrics could be dangerous. And in an age where transportation, I'm talking now into the kind of early 20th century, you start getting fashions that really don't work with modern environments. And for example, you get the hobble skirt, which was a very tightly fitting skirt, which was also called the airplane skirt because it was possibly inspired by a woman, the first female passenger in an airplane who had to tie her skirt up um, and make it tight so that it wouldn't flap up and show, of course, she was sitting on the outside of the airplane. So, you know, there's these new fashions that are inspired by modern technologies. And you also start getting, obviously, motor transport. Now, Isadora Duncan, who, interestingly enough, she favored these classical fashions. She was known for wearing bare feet and long fringed shawls and Grecian inspired clothing. Um, She wore those dresses on stage, but she also wore them off stage in her private life. And so you can imagine they were beautiful and elegant, but they were also perhaps not what you would want to wear um, in a convertible car. And that's just what she did. She, in 1827, on in Nice, on the French Riviera, she was taking, she was a passenger in a kind of race car, a Bugatti. And I looked up the design of the car, and it was very interestingly, the, the driver sat, in fact, in front of the passenger. The, there were only two seats in this car, and the passenger seat um, was set further back from the driver, for whatever reason. Um, and, the car, and the car itself had Um, kind of typically race car wheels for the time, which look a bit like the spoked wheels of a bicycle. And um, famously, Isadora Duncan, as she was leaving and saying goodbye to her friends, she threw a long red fringed shawl that her friend had given her. And there are fragments of this that survive in different collections. But she threw her shawl around across her shoulder. And unfortunately, she didn't realize that the fringes of that shawl, the long red fringes, had caught and caught in the spokes of the wheels. So when the driver, who couldn't see her, um, started driving the Bugatti, um, unfortunately, the, the shawl got tangled. The fringes in the shawl got tangled and strangled her almost immediately, breaking her neck. Oh, that's just awful. Yes, it was kind of a horrific way um, to die. But again, it's it's sort of the the combination of dress that was, if not fashionable, well, actually shawls were incredibly fashionable at that time. Yeah, French shawls too. <laughs> exactly. They were, they were very, I did look into it, they were very, very um, à la mode, shall we say. Um, and, and kind of this modern technology of the, the auto, you know, speeding along the road didn't go together. Because this was in 1926, Seven. was it? 27. Which is interesting because that's the year that um, there were they start becoming more and more aware of automobile accidents. And even the term accident prone is coined in 1926. Mm-hmm. And what's um, particularly interesting, I thought, is that you wrote how, you know, the typical ensemble that a woman would wear when in these open cars is she would have worn a headscarf and she would have worn goggles and a coat to um, protect herself. But that uh, Isadora just, you know, didn't wear any of these things, just this fashionable scarf. And that's what led to her death. Exactly. Apparently the, the driver offered him her his leather jacket, but she refused it because she was going to wear what she wanted to wear. So... And something I also found incredibly sad is that her two kids had also died in a horrific car accident earlier in in the 1910s. So cars and Isadora Duncan were not um, so sad. No. And in fact, one of the most poignant moments in um, my research was looking and I was in the Bibliothèque Nationale, the National Library in Paris, and they had sort of her records. And I, I found this very evocative little piece of the shawl that killed her. It was kind of kept as a relic. Um, and so I opened the envelope and there was the you know red shawl with a fringe kind of wrapping around it, almost strangling it as she had been strangled. It was just very evocative of the accident. But right beside it, there was a lock, a little another little envelope with a lock of hair of her son who had also perished in a car accident. It was a very oh, sad moment. That is so sad. So your sleuthing for fashion victims um, led you to your current research project, Unraveling Crime, which calls itself a forensic history of fashion. So um, you're investigating the theme of crime and clothing as weapon, evidence, and disguise. Can you please tell us about the role clothing plays in crime solving, both as weapon and evidence? I know the most famous case I can think of is the black glove used as evidence in the O.J. Simpson trial, but I'm sure you have many others. 
Oh yes, um, that is probably that is definitely one of the most famous um, famous cases. But what I'm finding in this new project, which was certainly follows on from fashion victims, is that clothing is such an individual marker, um, more than I would have thought in an age of you know even very mass produced items. Often it becomes you know especially as CSI would like us to believe, but it becomes the clue that leads to either the victim's identity or the killer's um, or or other perpetrator of crime or suspect in a crime. Um, so anything from, you know, the footprints left at a crime scene and, you know, Sherlock Holmes himself was kind of the master of using footprints to solve crimes. He actually uses footprints more than he uses fingerprints in his stories because fingerprinting was a new technology, whether, whereas tracking footprints, which I just wrote an article on, is really, you know, it comes from a knowledge of, you know, for example, hunting or tracking, which, you know, humanity has used for millennia. So I'm looking at all sorts of ways. Um, one of the most fascinating, I'm, I'm looking at a, a tailor who was a murderer in 1860s Paris, for example, and he um, he unfortunately dismembered uh, someone, uh, an elderly man, to steal his money. And the police officer who becomes commissioner of police, he becomes the top police officer in Paris, describes this first, what he calls his first crime, where he detected, um, he first suspected a tailor because the person's dismembered limbs were actually thrown in a well that was polluted um, by these remains. And they brought them up to the surface and they were wrapped in black cotton percolene, so a certain type of fabric, and tied with the knot that working class tailors used to deliver their packages to their customers. So he first started suspecting a tailor um, and it turns out to be the case. Okay, I'm convinced this is the next Netflix um, hit TV show. There's so much there. And forensic, what's what's really interesting is the way that um, kind of all of these new scientific police officers start using dress to detect the identity of, of people. So, for example, the one police officer in Lyon called Edmond Locard, he was a famous uh, criminologist. He starts developing all sorts of uh, ways. He looks at, for example, he tells police to unpick the pockets of the of the clothing of their of suspects because um, using a little vacuum cleaner that one of his students develops with a filter they can tell what you know profession someone belongs to by the dust in their pocket so for example he caught um, a counterfeiter because the metal alloys in the dust on the pockets and the sleeves was exactly the same as that of the counterfeited coins and something I find incredibly interesting is that your research is incredibly poignant and important to today's social and political climate. We are still living in a day and age where you can be criminalized and even killed for what you wear. Can you speak a little bit more to this? Yes. I mean, I, I'm a historian and I, I, I kind of try to focus on the long 19th century. Um, so this crime project will probably sort of cover the 1800s to about the 1930s. But I guess what continues to fascinate me is that unfortunately, um, from the hoodie of Trayvon Martin, you know, just you know, the most banal mass-produced kind of clothing you could find, a hoodie, or or in the UK, for example, hoodies are also were banned from certain shopping malls, you know, in an age of CCTV, covering your face is dangerous. You know, people are still criminalized for their clothing, whether it's, again, racialized people, or whether it's, for example, people, trans people are also often victimized. I mean, it was criminal to wear the dress belonging to another person's sex. And while that has finally been decriminalized, you know, often in the tw late 20th century, People are still persecuted for what they wear or, or, for example, religious forms of dress like hijabs. I mean, I, I find it troubling and traumatizing that people are often either criminalized or, or assaulted or, um, you know, harassed because of what they wear. And is it illegal to wear the hijab in France? I don't think it's illegal. It's certainly, um, there was a the big controversy of people wanting to cover up, for example, on beaches and wearing the burqa on a beach or the hijab on a beach, um, which it's really interesting, our ideas of freedom and what constitutes freedom. That's a whole other debate, you know, whether it's to undress or dressed, um, dress and, you know, why is modest dress problematic? But it's in France in particular, it comes from this long separation between state and religion. So for example, in theory, you're not allowed to wear a crucifix, for example, for school, school girls could not wear an overt sign of religious affiliation mm -hmm. um, either. But yeah, that's a that's a good case in point of, of something being, and in Quebec in Canada, there have been controversies over whether um, women should be allowed to, you know, hold public offices if they're, if they wear head coverings or facial coverings, which were defeated. <laughs> <laughs> good. 
good. It is the 21st yes. century after all. I like to think we're making some progress, even if sometimes it feels like we're moving backwards in other areas. Definitely. Allison, thank you so much for being here today. This was incredibly illuminating and the perfect topic for our Halloween episode, I must say. Yes. No, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. But before we go, do you have any other projects you're working on? You're, of course, going to have to come back when this project is published. Definitely. And it's going to be another exhibition at the Badashi Museum called Exhibit A. So, you know, how footwear is used as evidence. But what's really been great about this topic is um, is the way that the public has been so interested in it. And in fact, um, when I did the exhibition called Fashion Victims at the Badashi Museum with Elizabeth Semelhack, a publisher, a Canadian publisher called Owl Kids approached me and they wanted to do a tween version. So right now in April, um, there's a tween version called Killer Style that's coming out um, of the Fashion Victims book that's been rewritten and co-authored with, um, with a friend. So I'm really excited for that to come out. Awesome. Well, we will keep our eyes open for that. um, And please keep us posted. Thank you again for being here. My pleasure. Yes. Thank you, Allison. I highly suggest that everyone buy this book. It is a delightful read and illustrated with over 100 images. It really is. And after reading her book, I was pleased to discover so many connections with episodes that we have done on dress this season. For instance, in our episode on Queen Alexandra of Great Britain, we talked about her highly anticipated marriage to Prince Edward in 1863. Uh, While well, British seamstresses were working behind the scenes for exorbitantly long hours to dress women for the event. And there was one in particular, this 20-year-old seamstress by the name of Mary Ann Walkley. Well, April, she reportedly died after being forced to sew for 26 hours straight. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's terrible. Um, Yeah. And also we did the episode on the controversial history of cashmere, the cashmere with a K episode. And in that, we discussed the gift of cashmere shawls in the Middle East as part of the kalat or robes of honor ceremony. Well, Cass, did you know that on more than one occasion, these robes were actually poisoned in order to eliminate the gifter's political enemies? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is incredible how many ways fashion has been used to literally kill people over the years. And actually, we did not have a chance to touch on it in the interview, but Allison's book also addresses the many ways in which these dangers are still very much a part of our modern day reality. In fact, she says that we are, quote, more ignorant now of the health hazards of fashion than in the 19th century. Yes, and this is something that we addressed on our recent fashion and sustainability episode, The fashion and textile industries pose huge risks, not to just humans, but also to the environment. Fashion has come a long way, but it still has a long way to go. And as consumers, we hold no small responsibility in making sure that this happens. No, we we have a huge responsibility. However, Allison's book does conclude with an inspiring passage that I would like to quote here. She writes, As an incredibly powerful social and economic force, fashion is capable of bringing health and well-being to those it touches physically and emotionally. As this book proves, we need fewer fashion victims and more fashion saviors. Let us write a new dialogue to replace Leopardi's romantic vision of death recognizing fashion as her sister. What if life and fashion linked hands instead? Oh, that's great. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners, but not for us this week because Thursday we are very excited to bring you a very special bonus episode where April and I will dissect one of the most famous fashion icons of all time. So tell your friends and tune in. Until next time, may you take time to consider the ghosts hanging in your closet next time you get dressed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where we post images daily to accompany each podcast. And this is also our Twitter handle. You can find us on Facebook as well at dressed podcast without the underscore. And we absolutely love hearing from our listeners. So please write to us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. And don't forget about our merch store, which you can find at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. Check out the new designs that we've recently added. And as always, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram, and everyone else at How Stuff Works that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. <laughs>